Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. The year is 2021. Comrade, if you can go ahead and start with Vladimir Lenin's State and Revolution, Chapter 1. What is now happening to Marxist theory has, in the course of history, happened repeatedly to the theories of revolutionary thinkers and leaders of oppressed classes fighting for emancipation. During the lifetime of great revolutionaries, the oppressing classes constantly hounded them, received their theories with the most savage malice, the most furious hatred, and the most unscrupulous campaigns of lies and slander. After their death, attempts are made to convert them into harmless icons, to canonize them, so to say, and to hallow their names to a certain extent for the consolation of the oppressed classes and with the object of duping the latter, while at the same time robbing the revolutionary theory of its substance, blunting its revolutionary edge, and vulgarizing it. Today, the bourgeoisie and the opportunists within the labor movement concur in this doctoring of Marxism. They omit, obscure, or distort the revolutionary side of this theory, its revolutionary soul. They push to the foreground and extol what is or seems acceptable to the bourgeoisie. All the social chauvinists are now Marxists, don't laugh, and more and more frequently German bourgeois scholars only yesterday specialists in the annihilation of Marxism are speaking of the national German, Marx, who they claim educated the labor unions, which are so splendidly organized for the purpose of waging a predatory war. In these circumstances, in view of the unprecedentedly widespread distortion of Marxism, our prime task is to reestablish what Marx really taught on the subject of the state. This will necessitate a number of long quotations from the works of Marx and Engels themselves. Of course, long quotations will render the text cumbersome and not help at all to make it popular reading, but we cannot possibly dispense with them. All, or at any rate, all the most essential passages in the works of Marx and Engels on the subject of the state must by all means be quoted as fully as possible so that the reader may form an independent opinion of the totality of the views of the founders of scientific socialism and of the evolution of those views, and so that their distortion by the Kautskyism now prevailing may be documentarily proved and clearly demonstrated. It's been so many years since I read this, and I forgot what he was saying. He's actually talking about Martin Luther King. Why do I say that? Anybody knows Dr. King, who lived during his time as I did? He was an anti-imperialist. Nobody knows that he spoke at a meeting of the Communist Party. Nobody even knows this. I was there in 1967 in New York at the centennial of W.E.B. Du Bois. And Dr. King spoke about Du Bois at a party meeting. Nobody knows that during the Vietnam War, American Imperialist War, he spoke against American imperialism and said that capitalism creates this. He didn't use the word capitalism. He said the economic system, which is talking about capitalism. That has all been whitewashed. All you hear about Martin Luther King is, I had a dream from a mountain that all people are going to live. You know what the rest of it is. That sanitized, ridiculous version of what Dr. King was about. Remember, he died organizing sanitation workers in the South. That's when he was assassinated. So the system does this to everybody. 
Lenin saw man, what they did in his time. And they made Marx basically unrevolutionary. Thank you. Some of the things that Lenin talks about here, where there's the revisionism of Marxism, that's something that I've noticed a lot in our modern political climate, where they'll refer to anything and everything as Marxism except for things that are actually Marxist. And so it's something that happens a lot from all ends, whether it's the ultra-leftists or from the right-wing talking heads, where I'll see a lot of people, they'll bastardize the terminology, they'll co-opt it, and they'll use it for these reformist ends, which ends up distorting the actual revolutionary momentum of the masses. So that was something that I just wanted to point out, was the fact that some of what he's talking about is still happening very much today. Could somebody explain what exactly is Kautskyism? It's named after Karl Kautsky. Karl Kautsky was one of the leaders of the original social democratic movement before the communist movement was born. So we were all members of the social democratic party. If you want to use a term for that, you can call it socialist. We were all members of the socialist party. After 1917, we split those who supported the Soviet Revolution and those who did not, those who supported World War I and those who did not. And so those of us who did not support World War I, who called it an imperialist war, and those who supported the Soviet Union and the Soviet Revolution of 1917, we became known as communists. But before that time, we were all members of the same party. People should know that. So Karl Kautsky was a member of the same party as Lenin, the member of the Russian Social Democratic Party, before they split into the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. And Kautsky was a very good Marxist when he was younger. And he knew exactly what to say, and he was correct on the class struggle. After a certain period of time, he went to the right. His people supported the German ruling class over others. The British Social Democrats supported Britain in their war. The Germans supported Germany, etc. So Kotskyism has been associated with revisionism and specifically reformism and no longer revolutionaryism. Kotsky made a rightward turn in his analysis, and particularly on the idea of a higher stage of imperialism lead it towards reconciling the class contradictions of capitalism, like a super-imperialism. Lenin spoke on it a lot in pointing out the flaws of it in that imperialism is not capable of actually doing that, and that it is cannibalistic in a period of decay of capitalism. And that was the main tenet, the main ideology of Kautskyism towards the later stages. When Kamed is talking about super-imperialism, this is the idea that there was a stage beyond imperialism that would be a solution to global conflicts. And that's the line Kautsky took, and he's historically understood as a right opportunist. I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about the context in which this was written. I'm more concerned with Lenin's audience. Who is he writing to? Lenin wrote State and Revolution during the actual 1917 revolution, and I don't believe he was able to finish the last chapter, so I think the last part of it was that 
Lennon was saying that he could go on and write more, but that it was much better to actually participate in the revolution than to continue it. And so he was writing it, like his other works, for party members, for the press, and for all the communists engage in the theoretical discussions of Marxism at the time. I believe that in the context was that a lot of Kautsky's writings were allowed into Russia, free revolution, and a lot of Lenin's writings and the communist writings were censored. So this is a lot of Lenin's response to that and trying to fight back against all the Kautsky's writings. But also I'd like us to focus on the bourgeoisie whitewashing a lot of socialism. And we see this in America today with people like Martin Luther King or Einstein. These were all socialists, maybe not our flavor of socialism, but we never hear them. And the bourgeoisie warps them and warps their history to suit their needs. And then they throw back quotes at us all the time, like we see from the latest MLK Day of all these quotes of nonviolence and all this other stuff, so that it suits their needs and strips them of what Lenin says, the revolutionary behavior. We should recognize that. In this section of State and Revolution, we have Lenin talking about social chauvinists and then in the same paragraph talking about bourgeois scholars referring to a national German. Are these the precursors to fascists or different entities entirely? The term chauvinism, national chauvinism. The younger people would remember the term they talk about now. We actually as communists talked about it in the 20s. White chauvinism in the 1970s with the birth of the modern women's feminist movement, the term male chauvinism. All of the adjectives, white, male, national, the main term is chauvinism. Chauvinism is an element, one of the elements of modern day fascism. So that's the tip off for the comrade. And as Dimitrov said, the most reactionary most chauvinist sections, those are the sections that become fascist. So that's the only connection I could see. Thank you. We can go to the section from the Communist Manifesto. Chapter 2 of the Communist Manifesto. In what relation do the communists stand to the proletarians as a whole? The communists do not form a separate party opposed to the other working class parties. They have no interests separate and apart from those of the proletariat as a whole. They do not set up any sectarian principles of their own by which to shape and mold the proletarian movement. The communists are distinguished from the other working class parties by this only. One, in the national struggles of the proletarians of the different countries, they point out and bring to the front the common interests of the entire proletariat, independently of all nationality. Two, in the various stages of development which the struggle of the working class against the bourgeoisie has to pass through, they always and everywhere represent the interests of the movement as a whole. The communists, therefore, are on the one hand practically the most advanced and resolute section of the working class parties of every country, that section which pushes forward all others. On the other hand, theoretically, they have over the great mass of the proletariat the advantage of clearly understanding the line of march, the conditions, and the ultimate general results of the proletarian movement. The immediate aim of the communists is the same as that of all the other proletarian parties, 
formation of the proletariat into a class, overthrow of the bourgeois supremacy, conquest of political power by the proletariat. The theoretical conclusions of the communists are in no way based on ideas or principles that have been invented or discovered by this or that would-be universal reformer. Something that I thought was interesting that Marx brought up was talking about how the Communist Party and the other working class parties, they're not enemies. They can work together because they're both working for the proletariat, but the Communist Party is separate from them. It made me think about how Dimitrov called for the need for a workers' party during the United Front, and in the United States, Browder tried to go along with this idea, but in the end, he decided that we didn't need to have a communist party, we needed a communist association, which meant that he moved away from Marx's idea that there should still be a communist party, even though there should also be workers' parties along with it. The Communist Manifesto was written by Marx and Engels. The first Congress of Communists took place in 1847, and that organization, they requested that Marx and Engels write a document for that Congress. And it immediately did not make a very large impact. It basically was sent into obscurity for about 23 years. And then the revolution in France kicked off. I believe that was in 1871. What exactly is meant by the theoretical conclusions of the communists are in no way based on ideas or principles that have been invented or discovered by this or that? would be universal reformer. Could we name any figures who Marx and Engels might be referring to at this time? If someone wants to correct me on this, please do. This is 1848. There's obviously a lot of intellectuals in Europe that are trying to figure out the socialism that will work, if that makes any sense. So along with the Marxists during this time, the Lasallians from Ferdinand Lasalle, you had the Proudhonists, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon as an anarchist. Bakunin is probably the biggest one in terms of any sort of competition to Marx. He came from a more anarchist-based background. But those are the kinds of people that Marx would be referring to. And these would be the people that made sectarian ultra-left splits within the First International, which lasted from 1864 to 1876. Those are the kinds of people that I believe Marx is referencing. I just want to go over, if someone could explain to me what exactly they meant by the communists do not form a separate party opposed to other working class parties, and they have no interest separate and apart from those of the proletariat as a whole. They do not set up any sectarian principles on their own. I don't really understand. Is it bad that a communist party, for example, would be like, okay, we're going to be a Marxist-Leninist party as opposed to those Maoists or the Trotskyist party? I'm not fully understanding. I think this is a very important section. I really do, for a lot of reasons. This was written in the 1860 period. What's interesting is that after all we've been through in this planet, the ups and flows from the Paris Commune, which lasted 70 days, to the revolution in the Soviet Union and the setting up of Bolshevikism in Russia, which lasted over 70 years, We've had ebbs and flows, like in an ocean, ebbs and flows. If you go on a beach, you go by the shore, the waves come in and the waves go out. And every time the waves go in, if you notice, it goes in more. And then at a certain point, 
it'll go more. And then at a certain point, it'll go out, and it starts going out and out and out. So that's what Marx calls the ebbs and flows of social revolution. But what I thought was interesting is he uses the word communist. After all these years, I really, really am upset that groups on the left refuse to use that word in their name. They actually think about it, and they actually come out with a conclusion, no, we're not going to. Every group on the left, except for one, the CPUSA, every other group refused to use that name in their name. And it was all for accommodation to bourgeois ideology. Listen to them, and they'll tell you the reason why. And I think it's clear that Marx says that we're not afraid to say who we are. We're communists, and we're proud of the name. And that we are no different than any other section of the proletariat. Now, remember terms. People may not know this. Proletariat is not equal to the whole working class. It's equal to those members of the working class that are with the basic means of production. In other words, what we would call factory workers, steel, coal, those kind of things. Those are the proletariat. Today, in our society, we would have to extend it to the whole working class, which means people that work in the service industries, etc. But the point is, he does go out of his way to say that communists are different. And I think we should be happy that we chose to call our party the party of communists, not the party of liberation or the party of socialist or the party of Freedom Road or whatever. I think that's very, very key, telling people the difference of who we are. We have to be in a leading force, the vanguard. Thank you. This is Chapter 3. In countries where modern civilization has become fully developed, a new class of petty bourgeois has been formed, fluctuating between proletariat and bourgeoisie, and ever renewing itself as a supplementary part of bourgeois society. The individual members of this class, however, are being constantly hurled down into the proletariat by the action of competition, and as modern industry develops, they even see the moment approaching when they will completely disappear as an independent section of modern society to be replaced in manufacturers, agriculture, and commerce by overlookers, bailiffs, and shopmen. In countries like France, where the peasants constitute far more than half of the population, it was natural that writers who sided with the proletariat against the bourgeoisie should use, in their criticism of the bourgeois regime, the standard of the peasant and the petty bourgeois, and from the standpoint of these intermediate classes, should take up the cudgels for the working class. Thus arose petty bourgeois socialism. Sismondi was the head of this school, not only in France, but also in England. This school of socialism dissected with great acuteness the contradictions of the conditions of modern production. It laid bare the hypocritical apologies of economists. It proved incontrovertibly the disastrous effects of machinery and division of labor, the concentration of capital and land in a few hands, overproduction and crises. It pointed out the inevitable ruin of the petty bourgeois and peasant, the misery of the proletariat the anarchy in production, the crying inequalities in the distribution of wealth, the industrial war of extermination between nations, the dissolution of old moral bonds, 
of the old family relations of the old nationalities. In its positive aims, however, this form of socialism aspires either to restoring the old means of production and of exchange, and with them the old property relations and the old society, or to cramping the modern means of production and of exchange within the framework of the old property relations that have been and were bound to be exploded by those means. In either case, it is both reactionary and utopian. Its last words are corporate guilds for manufacture, patriarchal relations in agriculture. Ultimately, when stubborn historical facts had dispersed all intoxicating effects of self-deception, this form of socialism ended in a miserable fit of the blues. Two points that I thought was interesting. Number one, he's talking about those people who talk about socialism who are linked to the middle class. He mentions it clearly. He also was warning us, listen carefully, he warned us about the middle class. The middle class is not one of us. The middle class, the fear, and he mentions it, is that they're going to fall into the working class. I'm warning everyone here at this meeting, beware of people on the left who push the middle class. Beware of them. They are putting seeds in our own destruction. The middle class always sides with the ruling class when push comes to shove, and it mentions that in this reading. The fake socialism of the Social Democrats, he warns us against. And I want to mention that because whenever we talk about socialism in this planet, look at where the middle class is. If the middle class is there, it's not socialism. Thank you. When Marx was talking about the bourgeois socialists, the very first person who came to mind for me was Ferdinand LaSalle, who is, in my opinion, probably one of the best examples of one of these sorts of people. Marx and Engels wrote in private letters about him constantly, about how he was very pompous. He was, he was an aristocrat who was a socialist, and he'd always go about talking about how he knew all these people, and he was in all these inner circles, but his writings, they didn't really get to the same points that Marx and Engels did. They didn't reach the same conclusions. They didn't reach the people the same way that Marx and Engels did. It wasn't the same substance. These sorts of people, they always fall a little flat of actually reaching the point. It's nice as Marxists because we can dissect that these utopian socialist trends were in and of themselves reactionary, but when taken into the whole historical scheme of things, they had a progressive role to play because fundamentally they planted some seeds, so to speak, of these socialist ideas, and then we see that eventually we got scientific socialism. I wanted to point out as well a similar trend in Russia, actually, with a work similar to this nature that inspired Lenin. It's from the 1860s. It is called What is to be Done? It's by Nikolai Chernichevsky, and Essentially, it is a similar utopian socialist utilitarian viewpoint, but the point is that even though it's kind of fallen into obscurity, these things are still worth studying because we can see that they inspired these revolutionaries that to this very day we admire. With the utopian socialists doing a good job of inspiring other people, um, a lot of what these people did, especially the people who were surrounding Marx and Engels, were in the same circles as them. 
but had the conflicting ideas of communism, especially LaSalle. Um, LaSalle, the best thing that he did is he pushed everyone away from himself with his ideas as they got more obscure and pushed them over to Marx and Engels. Just like they were dealing with a different type of socialism, utopian socialism, we're also dealing with a different type of quote-unquote socialism and the bourgeois and the petty bourgeois trying to blunt socialism. They might not have been trying to blunt socialism in the same way back then, but now we see the petty bourgeois trying to blunt our socialist movement with their government does stuff and all the other types of socialism that we're seeing, and we need to be able to fight against that because right now they're using that as a crutch for capitalism and not as an actual revolutionary movement. Would the proletariat that was defined back then be, for example, in my state, would it be the people who work at ShopRite, who work at the mall, who work at places that aren't just factories, which aren't at such a high division of labor where they're at a factory doing one thing over and over and over again? In that case, would unionizing be step one to spread revolutionary fervor? Yeah, I just want to say quickly the quote from Lenin. He said, unions, trade unions, are the experimental schools for socialism. That's Lenin saying that. So why does Lenin say that? It's obvious. Workers are not accustomed, like all people in this country and all countries before us, are not accustomed to do political decision-making. They think it's only for politicians. For example, during the revolution, only the people on the eastern seacoast that were involved with shipping and the mercantile system of trading were involved in the revolution against England, against colonialism by England. The rest of the people in the country were on their farms, plowing, milking their cows. That's what they were doing. So what trade unions do, it shows you that the average person can participate in a meeting and actually take power onto themselves. He calls them the laboratories for socialism. Marx said that the worker with the hand is as much a worker as the worker with the head. So mental and physical labor are both part of the working class. And also the way that Marx defined the proletariat was that the proletariat is that class where they do not appropriate unpaid labor, which is essentially profit, surplus value, and they sell themselves piecemeal. And also on the subject of unions, it is important for workers to be unionized. That's an understatement saying that, but there's also a limit to unions and that it is an economic struggle for the unions. And that is where the Communist Party and the party of the working class comes in to take the struggle, the economic struggle, onto the next level to the political struggle. We have to have a base, the economic base, the economic struggle to lead the workers onto the political struggle. And that's what the unions provide in organizing the workers in order to take the struggle to the next level by the leadership of the Communist Party. A certain similarity I've always seen in the way that Marx here describes petty bourgeois socialism and what we think of now mostly as anarchism. And both of them have a disdain for 
industrial society and the excesses of capitalism, but they both almost look backwards at simple societies that aren't industrialized and where people just own their own labor. They tend to be people who say socialism is when workers own the means of production. Is that an appropriate comparison to make between what he's describing here and what we see as people who call themselves anarcho-communists? Yes, I think that's generally how you would describe it. There's also several currents today among anarchists who are anti-industrial society and want to take society back towards collection of petty handicrafts, petty trades, small workshops, and the like. I think another comparison that could be made is what the Narodniks were in Russia and how they viewed the petty bourgeois as not declining but growing and how Lenin had to dispel that myth because it was contradicting the idea that capitalism and that monopoly was inevitable. And so Lenin spent a great deal of time dispelling the myth of the Narodniks, who were at one point a very sizable movement within Russia, but later died out because of how ridiculous and how incorrect their ideas were. This is chapter three. A part of the bourgeoisie is desirous of redressing social grievances in order to secure the continued existence of bourgeois society. To this section belong economists, philanthropists, humanitarians, improvers of the condition of the working class, organizers of charity, members of societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals, temperance fanatics, whole and corner reformers of every imaginable kind. This form of socialism has, moreover, been worked out in complete systems. We may cite Perdon's Philosophie de la Misere as an example of this form. The socialistic bourgeois want all of the advantages of modern social condition without the struggles and dangers necessarily resulting therefrom. They desire the existing state of society minus its revolutionary and disintegrating elements. They wish for a bourgeoisie without a proletariat. The bourgeoisie naturally conceives the world in which it's supreme to be the best, and bourgeois socialism develops this comfortable conception into various more or less complete systems. In requiring the proletariat to carry out such a system and thereby to march straightway into the social New Jerusalem, it but requires in reality that the proletariat should remain within the bounds of existing society, but should cast away all its hateful ideas concerning the bourgeoisie. A second and more practical but less systematic form of this socialism sought to depreciate every revolutionary movement in the eyes of the working class by showing that no mere political reform, but only a change in the material conditions of existence in economical relations could be of any advantage to them. By changes in the material conditions of existence, this form of socialism, however, by no means understands abolition of the bourgeois relations of production, an abolition that can be effected only by a revolution, by administrative reforms based on the continued existence of these relations. Reforms, therefore, that in no respect affect the relations between capital and labor, but, at the best, lessen the cost and simplify the administrative work of bourgeois government. 
Bourgeois socialism attains adequate expression when, and only when, it becomes a mere figure of speech. Free trade for the benefit of the working class, protective duties for the benefit of the working class, prison reform for the benefit of the working class. This is the last word and the only seriously meant word of bourgeois socialism. It is summed up in the phrase, the bourgeois is a bourgeois for the benefit of the working class. This bourgeois socialism thing really does remind me of actually what's going on kind of right now with the progressives and the government. I think they realize that through the impending economic crisis, feel like they have to address the needs of the working class and try to appease them just enough so that no revolutionary movement can build with this idea of prison reform and other reforms like that, basically to continue the existence of capitalism. That's all I have to say. That actually reminds me a little bit of the New Deal to an extent, the idea that the New Deal was this barrier between capitalism and communism, a bailout of crumbs for working people to an extent that it would prevent them from organizing and using their collective energy to have a communist revolution. So that sort of popped into my mind when you said that. We can definitely see from what we read tonight, the essence of everything that was spoken, how all these revisionists and ways to dull the sword of revolutionary potential because they can see it coming. They see that when crisis happens and so many people look for something to turn to, it's easier to dull the ideology and muddy the waters as a way to save capitalism. Very important that we're reading this. There are people who are masquerading in the left today as communists. Really, they have to be exposed, in my opinion. These are not fellow travelers. These are not allies in the struggle against capitalism. They are actually, in my opinion, agents of the bourgeoisie in the communist movement. And I'm talking specifically of a group that calls themselves CPUSA. We all know of the group. One message we get from the manifesto over and over and over again, and that word is overthrow. That's the word that's there time and time again. Yet they have classes, the CPUSA, in which they talk about Lenin and they don't mention Lenin's contribution to revolution. They don't mention the manifesto in the way that Marx wrote it and Engels wrote it, talking about overthrow. These people should be exposed. That's what they are. They're not communists. They are social democrats. We should expose them and have ideological battle, in my mind, with people that are in that group. Thank you. When I look back at what Marx and Engels say about bourgeois socialism, emphasizing that we don't need to change the system, we don't need revolution, my first thought really goes to every time I hear a lot of these liberals talking about, why don't we all just stop being racist? Why can't we all just stop being misogynistic? They don't realize the reason behind a lot of these things. A lot of the reasons behind racism is systemic. A lot of reasons behind misogyny is systemic. And they just want us to all just be better without actually changing anything. And that's their most that they can think of. That's the first thing I think of that. I absolutely agree wholeheartedly when it comes to this bourgeois socialism thing. It's because they are the ones that are appealing to the better halves of their capitalist idols. 
saying, no, things okay. We don't need to change anything. We just need a little bit of help so we can become like you. We want to be like you. I think when it's coming to fighting that ideology, the best thing we can do is remind them that they are us. I'm still living in a generation where my parents went to segregated schools and my grandparents. There's no way to ease that along or make it go any faster without smack in the face education about it and open dialogue. Chapter 3 of the book Socialism, Utopian and Scientific by Friedrich Engels. The materialist conception of history starts from the proposition that the production of the means to support human life and, next to production, the exchange of things produced is the basis of all social structure. That in every society that has appeared in history, the manner in which wealth is distributed and society divided into classes or orders is dependent upon what is produced, how it is produced, and how the products are exchanged. From this point of view, the final causes of all social changes and political revolutions are to be sought not in men's brains, not in men's better insight into eternal truth and justice, but in changes in the modes of production and exchange. They are to be sought not in the philosophy, but in the economics of each particular time. The growing perception that existing social institutions are unreasonable and unjust, that reason has become unreason and right wrong, is only proof that in the modes of production and exchange, changes have silently taken place with which the social order, adapted to earlier economic conditions, is no longer in keeping. From this, it also follows that the means of getting rid of the incongruities that have been brought to light must also be present in a more or less developed condition within the changed modes of production themselves. These means are not to be invented by deduction from fundamental principles, but are to be discovered in the stubborn facts of the existing system of production. What is, then, the position of modern socialism in this connection? The present structure of society, this is now pretty generally conceded, is the creation of the ruling class of the bourgeoisie. The mode of production peculiar to the bourgeoisie, known since Marx as the capitalist mode of production, was incompatible with the feudal system, with the privileges it conferred upon individuals, entire social ranks, and local corporations, as well as with the hereditary ties of subordination, which constituted the framework of its social organization. The bourgeoisie broke up the feudal system and built upon its ruins the capitalist order of society, the kingdom of free competition, of personal liberty, of the equality before the law of all commodity owners, of all the rest of the capitalist blessings. Thenceforward, the capitalist mode of production could develop in freedom, since steam, machinery, and the making of machines by machinery transformed the older manufacturer into modern industry, the productive forces evolved under the guidance of the bourgeoisie, developed with a rapidity and a degree unheard of before. But just as the old manufacturer, in its time and handicraft, becoming more developed under its influence, had come into collision with the feudal trammels of the guilds, so now modern industry, in its more complete development, comes into collision with the bounds within which the capitalistic mode of production holds it confined. The new productive forces have already outgrown the capitalistic mode of using them, and this conflict between productive forces and the mode of production is not a conflict engendered in the mind of a man, 
like that between original sin and divine justice. It exists, in fact, objectively outside of us, independently of the will and actions of the people that have brought it on. Modern socialism is nothing but the reflex in thought of this conflict, in fact. Its ideal reflection in the minds, first, of the class directly suffering under it, the working class. With relation to the utopian socialists, something interesting about them that I noticed doing research about them is the large majority of their movements, when you get down to it, you'll notice one thing is that they were all exclusively white supremacists. Every single one of them was. They all thought that a utopian society was a pure white society, that that's what utopian socialism was built on, was the idea of white supremacy. And so that was one of the big failings, because as we know, while Marx and Engels certainly weren't perfect in terms of this sort of thing, they definitely understood that racism was wrong. When Engels says, the final causes of all social changes and political revolutions are not sought in the minds of man and are not sought in philosophy, that speaks exactly to this idea of utopian socialism, this idea of people like CPUSA and DSA, where it's detaching itself from a materialist perspective. If Engels and Marx were talking about this in the middle of the 1800s, these are not principles we should be ignoring. So I thought that was a really important point that Engels brought up. The books I'm going to be talking about the Crisis in the Socialist Party by William Z. Forster, and it was written in 1936. And I think it's excellent because it's a description of what has happened to the CPUSA over the past 30 years. It's exactly that. Just take away the name socialist and put the name communist, and it's giving you the presentation of how that party has degenerated into a social democratic formation. That's one book. The other one is a great book by Fidel Castro called Socialism or Death, written in 1989 when he was dealing with Gorbachev and he was dealing with people who wanted to tinker the socialist economy with capitalist aid. And here's what he says on page 9 of that pamphlet. He says, can socialism be improved by forsaking Marxism-Leninism's most basic principles? Question mark. Why must the so-called reforms be along capitalist lines? Question mark. If those ideas are truly revolutionary as their adherents claim, why do they receive the imperialist leaders' unanimous, enthusiastic support? Question mark. During Comrade Gorbachev's visit to Cuba in April of this year, an in-depth exchange of views, I publicly expressed my opinion on what was going on that any socialist country, notice the terms he used, who wants to build capitalism, has a right to do so, and it should be respected, just as we demand complete respect for our country's view to reject capitalism and build socialism. That's just a quote from that book. I urge people to get it. It's the beginning of Fidel's concern 
about tinkering with the economy in a socialist country. And the last one is written in 1930. It was a speech given by Comrade Earl Browder, who was his general secretary, in 1938 on the 15th anniversary of the Workers' School in New York. His name of the pamphlet is Theory as a Guide to Action. I'm going to read this one section. A theory which, as every science is continually developing and improving, and which does not hesitate to replace individual outdated propositions and conclusions with new propositions and conclusions corresponding to a new historical condition. He goes and he explains what he means by that. A great book on Marxism-Leninism. He recommends the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Bolshevik, that was written in the 30s. Thank you. I would recommend Wage, Labor, and Capital. It's about 40 pages. It's by Karl Marx, and it goes into the ins and outs of uh, surplus value and those kinds of things. So if you want a short little economic text that's theory-based, I'd recommend Wage, Labor, and Capital. What's so important about this is that it's an overview of the situation that Lenin described in his time about the pacification of Marx, and also today we can see the pacification of Lenin in the CPUSA. And I think we're in a pivotal moment in world history. We're part of the ebb and flow of the development of class struggle. And there's periods. So ours is a period of growth of the communist movement which is happening after a period of serious decline. And so we're tasked with reconciling the ideology of the working class, which has been imbued with the ideological characteristics of the decay and rise of capitalism. So it's imperative for us to be watchful, not only for rightist deviations characteristic of the expansion of capital, such as in the previous period, but also leftist deviations during periods of decline. And it's Bolshevism, the center and a correct reflection of the reality of the relations of forces that we must adhere to. And I think no better text on this is Stalin's Mastering Bolshevism, which lays out clearly where these issues come from. And also from Lenin in his Marxism and Revisionism, and his discussion of the futility of the bourgeois socialism that was characterized by neurotism, in Russia, and also his article, The Collapse of the Second International. And all of these texts are crucial for examining the ideological currents and development that take place during the struggle. Dizzy with Success by Stalin, along with Stalin's speeches on the American Communist Party and on correcting mistaken ideas in the party. They're all speeches, and together, are all interrelated, and they all deal with mistakes and correcting them. Stalin's speeches on the American Communist Party deal with factionalism. They deal with the issues of the Lovestoneites and the issues that happened there and issues that happened with the CPUSA delegation when it went to Moscow. Dizzy with Success deals with the issues of excesses during collectivization and shows leadership taking responsibility for issues. On correcting mistaken ideas in 
The Party is a book by Mao. It talks about individualism. It talks about what he calls ultra-democracy. It talks about egalitarianism. These three books, in my opinion, are must-reads for Marxist-Leninists. When I was listening to the discussion about the so-called leftists or communists to watch out for, so other than the CPUSA, I'd like to get some opinions on any other organizations that are somewhat well-known to one extent or another that we also need to be on the lookout for that, from our perspective, is just not principled in their approach to the struggle. One that comes to my mind instantly is DSA. DSA is a non-centralized body. They're not even a party. They could be considered a pre-party formation. But they're basically just a general conglomeration of a non-ideologically principled, if you want to call them leftists, and they're probably social democrats, trots, socialists. But the lack of ideological unity within DSA would be a huge red flag for people in our movement. Socialist Party USA? They're not even the original Socialist Party. They formed in the ashes of what was left over from it. Most of their membership is just like CPUSA. It's full of retirees and pensioners, people who are old enough to still have a pension, who don't even care about the revolution anymore. I know people who have been or who are in SPUSA, and they wonder half the time why they're even still in the party. The reason why I think the CPUSA is the worst, because they still pretend that they're communists. The others don't even mention it in their names. That's why I think they're the worst. They are the grossest misleaders to young people who want to know what communism is about. They go to them, and they're the worst. They don't even know what it's about. In fact, I was a member of that party for 40 years. They are anti-communist today. They are anti-Soviet today. If you are anti-Soviet, you're anti-communist. Don't kid yourself. And that's why all the other groups, Freedom Road Socialist Organization, they don't have the name communist in them. Party for Liberation and Socialism, they don't have the name communist. Workers' World Party doesn't have the name communist. So the only one that still misleads people is the old CP. If anybody was ever in that party, they could attest. They never talk about communism. Never. Never. Something interesting um, about the Communist Manifesto, it was published in February of 1848, right around the same time that the great revolutions of 1848 started throughout Europe. And it managed to have some influence in France, not much, but it had a significant influence in Germany. Not right away, but by 1849. So we can see that the influence of the manifesto and how important this text is, how influential it is, by how quickly it caught on with the people. The first French publication didn't come out until April 1848, and it was the June uprising that was inspired by it. That wasn't much time in between the first publication and people being inspired by it to actually try and rise up against the bourgeoisie. Recently, there's been a lot of activity on the union movement. There was just a labor united and class struggle meeting. What we discussed was the recent rise in trade unionism. And so I want to reiterate that 
we're in a new period, in a period of the upsurge of the communist movement, and the stakes have never been higher, especially for the future of humanity with the ecological crisis on the horizon, and as we struggle against the growing anti-people forces of fascism during such a seismic disruption of the economy with the pandemic and all of the consequences from it. And so if the previous decades after the fall of the USSR could be characterized as capital's death grip around the third of the workers, as Comrade Stalin said would be the case if the Soviet Union were to fall, and it being the loss of the world communist position, I think the new period can be characterized as the second wind of the world communist movement, because as we all know, the growth of socialism, the growth of communism, is an irresistible development of the present age, are going to witness far larger battles in the years to come. What we read tonight was all about to reteach the masses about the revolutionary activity that communists and socialists went through. How do we now build up that revolutionary background and that revolutionary fervor without scaring a lot of the working class? Because I have personally gone up to some people of the working class and just being honest about being a communist, but also not scaring them with all the lies that were told about basically communists eating babies for breakfast. It's a really fine line to walk. So how exactly do you walk that line by drawing in mass support, but also not capitulating to bourgeois tendencies or the main tenets of revisionism today? Your question, comrade, has a lot of answers. There's not one answer for every group. That's why communists are very different. One of my favorite quotes from Chairman Mao, I don't have too many good quotes from Chairman Mao, but we got to be among the fishes. We cannot be outside of them. And that means a lot, and I want to mention this. And this may sound strange to people, but we have to dress a way that we're not dressing for ourselves. We're dressing for the message we want to give to them. I hope people understand what I'm saying. I'm 73. I never did things that I wanted to do. I always did it how it would be acceptable to people because I knew that every time I was among people from the time I was 14 onward, I was going to talk something political. So if people are religious, we talk to them in their lingo that they could understand. If people are workers, who work on a factory job, we talk to them lingo. Students, their lingo. Women, their lingo. LGBT, the same thing. No difference. And that's the way I've done it. There's not one answer for everything, comrades. I want you to know. I recruited into the old party, which I was in, and this party. Literally, literally, I would say maybe five or 6,000 in my lifetime. You have to be among the fishes where the people are at. The yeah. famous words of Karl Marx. We're here on this phone tonight because we all think that Marx added a great message to humanity. And his famous one is, we approach people where they are at, not where we want them to be. We approach people where they're at. We deal with the world where it's at. Not where we want the world to be, where we want people to be. And that's from Marx, not from Angelo. That's right from Marx. 
I think there was an important okay. part of the comrade's question that wasn't answered, and it was how to deal with the influx of petty bourgeois or bourgeois ideology with the growth of the popular front or the united front, with the influx of members into the party. And I think that Comrade Stalin's pamphlet on mastering Bolshevism is an excellent pamphlet to read on how to combat that situation. And what it basically entails is, for starters, we have to have a firm economic foundation within the party on the proletariat. And then also, we have to get rid of our amateurism, we have to get rid of our political carelessness, and we have to steal ourselves on Marxism-Leninism. We have to steal ourselves as Bolsheviks, and we have to strengthen our political education to keep our comrades and our cadre from falling to the excesses of success and also to the perils of decline, which are opportunities for our ideology to deviate. And so that's why it's so crucial for our political education to play such a major role within the party. Thank you. I just want to say it's a new year we're in, 2021. I'm 73. In my lifetime, communism was a verboten word. Socialism was a forbidden word. And it's a different world today. It is true that about 15% of the young people favor communism. That's amazing. I was born in 47, brought up in the McCarthy period in the early 50s. Nobody even said the word. People were burning their Marxist books. Members of the party were burning Marxist books in their backyard so that nobody could find them with Marxist books in the house. Can you believe that? Considering that Hitler burned the books about 10 years before then, now people were voluntarily burning their books. People would throw themselves out the windows, if you didn't know that. They were afraid they were going to lose their jobs. Many of them did, the McCarthy period. You have to understand we're starting from that period. And we're starting all over again, which means a repression against us will be coming in the future. I'm not saying next year, next week, but when we become a threat to the bourgeoisie, like the old CP was a threat to the bourgeoisie in the 30s and 40s, that's why we had the McCarthy period in the 50s, then it'll happen again. But the world is changing every day. There's at least including those that favor communism in the new generation, socialism is respected, even though they don't know what it means. They're favorable to the word. This is a new world. We have to take advantage of this. This is a totally new situation. I hope you find this class a beacon of light in the darkness around you, because to me, the communist movement has been my GPS, if you know what that means. That's what I call the communist movement. It's been my direct me in my life, where I was going. I would have been lost a long time ago. I fell in love with the party and with the movement. And when I went to live in the Soviet Union, that was the tip of the iceberg for me. I saw in reality that this is the future, that capitalism is the past, that dog-eat-dog society is garbage nonsense. And we're on the right road, comrade, but we need more people to help us because if everybody gives a hand, we'll get through this problem of capitalism. Thank you. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.